that idea in mind, not knowing a soul, but figuring out, hoping that I would find my way. Yeah. And that's kind of like, that's, that's the, the, you know, the deep background of what have you. Unconventional Life, the show where I interview successful entrepreneurs, artists, creators, and thought leaders on how they earn their living in non-traditional ways. We will explore how they took the path less traveled, what their revenue model looks like, and why they are prioritizing their passion over their paycheck. I'm your host, Joel Schroeder. Unconventional Life, welcome. This is your host, Joel Schroeder, tuning in today from Boulder, Colorado. Today's guest is joining me from Santa Monica, California. I have got Gary Goldstein in the house. Gary, are you ready to take us down the path less traveled? Absolutely, always. Thanks, Joel. Yeah, so excited to have you on the show when uh, we get a couple hundred interview requests in every single month. And when yours came in, I was like, oh my gosh, this man is a man of many talents. You know, for those of you that aren't familiar with Gary, he is a legendary producer and best-selling author. And you've been responsible as a producer for Pretty Woman, the writer, producer, and director of War for Planet of the Apes, the upcoming Batman, also with Autumn in New York, Feast of Love. And then, you know, I know you've also written this book, Conquering Hollywood, the screenwriter's blueprint for career success. And not only have you been in the film and, you know, TV industry, won multiple Academy Awards, billion dollars sold in box receipts around the world. You're very multi-passionate, you know, with your hands in a, a lot of different, you know, baskets, both in personal life as well as in a professional life. And so excited to dive into the man behind all of uh, the accolades and things like that. Gary, welcome to the show. Fill in any gaps and give us a glimpse uh, into your personal life. Absolutely. First of all, you give me way too much credit. I have <laughs> produced some wonderful films. I did produce Pretty Woman and Under Siege and Mothman Prophecies, et cetera, et cetera. Some of those credits that you just listed are actually are not mine. They're, they belong to people that I broke into the business when I was a lit manager and have done, had extraordinary careers. So, you know, the Batman's not mine. But yeah, I mean, my background is a little bit eclectic. You know, I, I started out as a hippie at UC Berkeley, growing up in San Francisco, the Bay Area, heavily into the music scene produced all the concerts at Berkeley, brought in Joni Mitchell, all the poet laureates of the day. And, you know, when I came out of school, I thought I was going to go into the music business, but I liked the artistry and the storytelling and working with musicians, but I wasn't crazy about the business of the business. So I took a real left turn and decided that I wanted to champion the underdog. I wanted to help save the world as everybody does. And I ended up going to law school, but with a very specific purpose in mind. I had discovered, and I'd been interning at a foundation in the ghetto of San Francisco that was really dedicated to helping mend the fabric of this beleaguered community, a beautiful community. And the criminal defense unit was mandated to represent the the indigent adults of that geography and with the public defender. And I fell in love with it and wanted to work there. So I went to law school to become a criminal defense lawyer, which I did, and I did do that for a time. But I quickly came to realize that it was not a good fit of temperament and career. It was a very harsh world. It was some of the emotionally most challenging work I've ever done. And some of the, one of the best chapters of my life. I mean, the people I met, the lessons I learned, it was extraordinary. But I, um, I, I didn't want to make that my life. It wasn't yeah. a good fit. So I, you know, the thing that I had always been in love with was storytelling. My hero when I was a kid was Max Perkins, <laughs> one of my heroes. Who, who discovered, nurtured, launched careers for Faulkner, Hemingway, Ringlardner, Thomas Wolfe, et cetera, et cetera. Anyway, extraordinary man. 
And I thought if I could be Max Perkins, but in the film business, working with writers and directors. So I packed up whatever fit in my Volkswagen, came to Los Angeles with that idea in mind, not knowing a soul, but figuring out, hoping that I would find my way. Yeah. And that's kind of like, that's, that's the, the, you know, the deep background or what have you. Uh, and I've been here for a lot of years. I started out being forming my own literary management company. And years later, and I can tell you more about it later, but I, during a writer's strike, I decided to take one of my young clients who wanted to direct and I wanted to produce. And we went off and made a, a micro budget film called Cannibal Women in the Avocado Jungle of Death. <laughs> uh, it was just, you know, a comedy of errors. We did everything wrong. And yet we came out with a film and I got the bug. And so that was what sort of bridged me into full-time producing. Yeah. And there's so many things that I want to dive into and that we'll keep diving into. And, you know, even if you think back to that moment, Gary, how old were you when you left for LA at the time, way back then? Um, I was 30. Yeah. So 30, which, you know, some people might say, you know, 30, you know, you're pivoting a career. Why would you go do that? Leaving this law background. And I think a lot of our listeners, you know, they've had a certain degree of success or they followed a certain path, but there's this nagging feeling, this knowing, this bug in them that says there's got to be more. And for a lot of people, that feeling can be very counterintuitive, especially when life on the external looks decently good. And so what was it like for you in that moment? Was it easy to just pack up and leave or even from a mindset and even just any advice that you can give? And I'm sure you've probably done this time and time again in different ways, you know, since that moment. Um, but what it's like to actually know that there's something more and to step into it in a deeper way, even if you might not have the experience, the tools or the resources at the time. You know, it's interesting, Jules. Uh, growing up, I was incredibly shy and really had no sense of my place in the world. I fell into books when I was really young. I was very, came very alive in the world of story. But in the real world, I just felt I didn't have a, a handhold. And when I decided to go to law school, it was for really two reasons. One, I felt like I really needed an adult language that would give me a place at the table of humanity, in, in the marketplace of humanity. And being a diehard romantic who really likes helping others, when I discovered this foundation, that was it. It was like, I'm going to defend these people who need a voice. And, and it felt like a really perfect choice for me. When I realized, honestly, I was, I was madly in love with a woman. We'd been together. One evening, unexpectedly, in the wee hours of the morning, I got a call asking me to please come to the police emergency hospital. She'd been the victim of a very brutal attempted rape. She was beaten badly. And you talk about turning points. I was devastated. I was angry. I was disoriented. I was probably clinically across the line of crazy. <laughs> and, um, and in that moment, well, it wasn't in that moment. There were the, the first several days I was just, it, it was all a blur. But in the thought that, you know, once I got Donna home and, and safe, the first thing I did was it wasn't even a, a choice. It wasn't intellectual. I just w went to my these people who had become my family at the foundation, 125 people, and I hugged them all and said, I have to leave. Because for me at that moment, all crime became an unacceptable brutality. And I just couldn't make a life of it. Yeah. And I had no idea what was next, but I just knew I knew I had to leave. And I went to my dad, an amazing, he was just my best friend, my hero. And I went to my dad, very nervous, to tell him that I was quitting. And the truth was that I knew I wasn't quitting a job. I was quitting a career. And I expected he would 
give me a lecture as parents do. And when I finally nervously stuttered out of, out of making the statement, he, he, the second I stopped speaking, my dad broke into this big Cheshire grin and he said, great. And I was completely thrown off. And when I asked him why it was great, he said, because I don't see that you've been happy and I want you to find what excites you in life and whatever that is, go do it. Wow. Right. <laughs> uh, and I would say, I, I don't even remember your question, Jules, but that, you know, that was like permission to figure out who I truly am in the world, what lights me up, what I think I'm, what, what's my dharma, what belongs to me, what am I going to be happy doing and wake up excited every day? Yeah. And so, it, you know, the, inter the, the interesting part of it was that when I, uh, I actually, I had a lot of friends who were lawyers, both at the foundation and another firm where I did some work on the side. And all of them said the same basic thing, which is, oh my God, you're so brave, that's so courageous. How can you just give up all of this for the unknown of this very competitive, weird world that is Hollywood? And that wasn't my truth. My truth was actually quite the opposite. It was like, I felt like I was withering from the inside and that to stay where I was was extremely unhealthy for my soul and my, my being. And uh, it was actually more fear-based than courage-based, this decision to get out of Dodge, go out in the world and find what, what was a, a right-sized fit for me. It was just you know, following your, you know, your survival instinct. Absolutely. Well, Gary, I've had goosebumps through a lot of your story, especially about uh, just, you know, hearing that phone call from the police officer and all of that. And to, you know, it feels like recognizing that you said this truth, like this is one truth going down this path, being in this, you know, law path, and it's not my truth. And then going to your dad. And I think it's interesting sometimes it's like, we're almost the last to know, you know, to be like, well, Gary, you're obviously been unhappy. Of course, this makes sense. And we're just like sitting in our, you know, stuff of like, can I do it? And everyone's like, it's like your little, you know, inside job or whatever, last one to find out. And I think that's such an indicator, you know, and also that soul yearning in my own experience, I had this near-death experience that many of our listeners know about about five or six years ago, wakeboarding accident and full on like left my body, had this council conversation with these white wow. figure, six black shadow member of Jules, you have more work to do. Do you want to do it coming out of the MRI in the hospital? And they thought my neck was broken. It's a very condensed story. Um, but inside of that, it was this elevation of consciousness and this real reflection of what now what is my life for? There's my life that could be driven by me and doing all of what I think are the right things and the space of allowing life to come through me and the deep listening of, I don't know what's next. I don't know if I'm prepared for what's next. And I know, and I feel that something more is to come and something more is to be created. And, you know, I think that's, you know, very indicative of what emerged in your path. And uh, I know many of the successes that you've had, including Pretty Women, which was one of my favorite movies actually growing up. I've like watched it so many times. Um, but those things would have never emerged had you not honored that voice. And Unquenched Lifers, it's a nod to all of us, you know, honoring that voice. This podcast got birth literally from honoring that voice. And so you know, we never know what's in store for us around then. And, uh, you know, how has it been Gary since then? And even now looking at some of the things that you've done, how in your daily life, do you continue to honor that? And, you know, if we were fly on the wall in Gary's life, like what would we see on the day to day? Oh my gosh. What would you see? You know, I, before I answer that, and it's a great question. First of all, I want to honor you because that sharing that story. And I want to hear that podcast or more about that story of your near death experience, because 
you know, I, I'm a firm believer, believer that the more traumatic your failures, the more you hit your ass magnificently on the pavement, <laughs> the wiser, the quicker, the more rapidly we understand what, you know, we get a clarity that is absolutely anchors us, tethers us to the core of the universe. And interestingly, about the exact same time, in fact, it was around April, May of 2015. When was July, um, yeah. Oh, really? Yep. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, I, I had this different but similar experience in that I was found after eight days of being sort of incoherent, no food, no sleep, no water, in fetal position. A friend found me and took me to the ER and they said, well, you were, you know, your organs are shutting down, you're in deep sepsis. And I mean, I didn't, they didn't say... They might have said it to me. I was in yeah. not not present. And later they told me that I was within, you know, somewhere between twelve and twenty four hours of, of crossing over. And yeah. it took it, you know, the the first year after that, I was like the two thousand year old man. I was not high functioning. I could couldn't walk without bumping into walls. I my everything was, you know, brain fog and exhaustion and disorientation and blah blah blah. So. Um, one of the things I noticed reading your bio is that you're an avid CrossFitter. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and for a guy who could barely walk, I'm not, I'm, I'm really not competitive with other human beings. I'm extraordinarily self-competitive. And I knew when I looked in the mirror, I didn't recognize myself mm-hmm. in any sense. I didn't know who that person was or why they were here. And I thought, I can't live this way. So I need a challenge. Because I have some pretty alternative beliefs. I wasn't going to a bunch of specialists and doctors and testing and this and that. But I came across a CrossFit gym in my neighborhood. And five and a half, six years later, I can honestly look back and say that decision probably saved my life. So I feel very blessed. And I just have this insatiable curiosity. I would say that's one of my biggest drivers is, you know, wondering what if and just being curious and like needing to hear people's stories, because I find every human fascinating, even if they don't know it. And I have a, you know, I'm getting better. I'm actually getting much better at saying no. I always (laughs) say yes to everything. I just, my eyes are so big, much bigger than my calendar, but I would say yes to so many things. I'm, I'm a lot more disciplined now in a way. I'm much more, I feel much calmer and more grounded, part of it because of the sepsis experience, but part of it's just maturing, you know? And saying, gosh, wh- I, I have precious little time here and I need to make the biggest possible dent that I can. And where am I going to accomplish that? And so it's become very simple to say, does X, Y, or Z opportunity align with me, my heart, my gut, and my intentions yeah, uh, yeah. or not? And it really comes up, yes, no, it's really simple. And yeah. if it's not a hell yes, it's a no. And mm-hmm. so, you know, writing. Uh, I wrote one book. I'm not really an author, but I wrote a book, I'm writing another book. I'm still not an author, but it's important to me. And the next book is deeply personal. It's not a memoir. It's just a series of unexpected, surprising vignettes and the silver thread that connects them all. It's a love letter to life, really. I'm developing more films, projects, scripts. I'm developing a TV series. I am developing, I've developed and I'm putting together a business around a fragrance for women uh, that did like, you know, things come and you go, Oh my gosh, that's the sequel to pretty woman. That's <laughs> called cosmic love oil. And it is just a, such a, we're innovating with sound frequency infusion into us an essential oil based fragrance, things that just, if it really lights me up, 
certain partnerships and, uh, you know, it's much more, as much about the people as it is about the idea for me. And so having fun while doing something exciting, tend to lean in. I've got a place in Idaho that I'm rehabbing. I, I just love juggling a bunch of different stuff. I've never been bored since I was probably, you know, a, a wee little kid. I uh, have no intention that's ever going to be part of my life. <laughs> and uh, I like, I guess it comes down to being, you know, some of us are fire starters. We're not great operators. Mm. I can produce a film because it's a short horizon. It's several years max. Putting a team together, you know, we're on mission. The energy is really high. Uh, so I'm a fire starter. I like building. I like new things. I like sort of stretching myself and learning. Every time I try something new, I'm going to learn a lot more. Yeah. Uh, so that's what I look for. I look for amazing people and a North Star that's going to really somehow inform my life and maybe end up being a really positive contribution. Well, I love that, Gary, and uh, so many similar threads just with, you know, rehab. I've actually just been rehabbing a condo in Colorado. I'm actually sitting in it right now. It's still being finished right now, but there's a lot of different threads there, and even the fragrance line, you'll have to keep us posted about sound frequency plus epic essential oil sounds like something i'm sure our listeners would love to know more about and you know more than all of that though the continual it sounds like commitment to yourself like the continual commitment to truth is the way that i relate to it of just this is it a hell yes is it a no and really refining that muscle of just like data feedback okay here's this opportunity how does this feel and unconventional affairs i know sometimes it can feel confusing we can feel stuck we can feel paralyzed we're like which way do i go and i don't think there's ever a wrong path and i really believe in the patterns of life and the continual patterns that opportunities present themselves and uh you know there's a lot more i can say about that but gary if i don't ask you about pretty women our, our listeners are definitely gonna be like come on and so i'd love to know you know and i'm sure you get asked this all the time but what was really the story behind pretty women and when you were making it I know sometimes like even as an artist and a musician, there can be pressure of like making the perfect art or story or movie or whatever in pursuit of like, will this thing be successful? And then there's just the nature of doing it because you feel compelled. And then usually in my experience, that's the very thing that ends up really taking off. And so what was your relationship to creating Pretty Woman? And mm. what would we have seen at your point, you know, at your life in that point? And yeah, just a little bit about the back, you know, under anything undercover about the story that most of us might not know. Yeah, well, like you listen, every film that gets made is a miracle. They are always a surprising journey with lots of micro deaths and and left turns, and you know they fall apart and they come back together, or hopefully. Uh, and Pretty Woman was no exception. I was really, uh, I was a lot younger. I had, and actually, you know, I here. So here's a, a funny little tidbit. I I once read an article that I published in the Huffington Post. I think the title was something like, thanks Steve Jobs for Pretty Woman. Uh, and the reason is because back in the eighties, I bought the, one of those first ever Mac computers that came in a box the size of a refrigerator <laughs> and you couldn't plug it in and it didn't do a darn thing unless someone came and programmed it. And a woman I know, uh, a screenwriter was writing scripts on one of these. And I said, how, how did that happen? And she said, here, call this guy, Jonathan. So Jonathan comes, he spends three weeks in my office. He's brilliant. He uh, installs and creates programming for computers and he does all this magical stuff. And he, he spent three weeks and I got to know him and I liked him quite a bit. And I later, toward the end of the three weeks, I discovered he dropped out of film school. He'd written seven scripts that not a soul had ever read. They're sitting in a corner of his apartment. And I said, look, you know, let me read uh, something you've written and maybe I'll, I can help you find an agent. I read three scripts. He was way too talented to give them to an agent. 
So I said, you know, these scripts are great, but they're kind of collegey. So I want to work with you. Would you be willing to write on spec a new script, brand new script? And I want it to be a romance. And I want it to take place like in a room. So if I had to make it really inexpensively, no exploding bridges. Okay. So I want it to be a romance. It has to have an amazing male and female lead that I can cast up. And he turned in a script called 3000, which was the number of dollars Edward gives Vivian for her companionship for the week. It was at that time by far the single best, I wouldn't even say first draft, maybe best script I'd ever read. It was so unexpectedly, it was just compelling. It was, he lived in a part of Hollywood where he saw working girls, police and drug dealers and pimps, like that was his visual tapestry. He'd also ended a five-year relationship with a woman I think he was still in love with. And I thought, oh my God, this man will write. And he wrote beautiful women characters in all of his scripts, very complex, Mm -hmm. usually almost always the moral superior. So I thought, great, I want a romance from this man. (laughs) <laughs> and um, so that that script was awesome, but he was unknown, totally unknown. I was relatively unknown and I, I needed to create some visibility access. Uh, so I sent it to a friend who, uh, Michelle Satter, amazing lady, who sat at the right hand of Robert Redford building from day one, that which became Sundance Institute and Sundance Film Festival, et cetera. And she immediately fell in love with it and invited us to the producer's lab at Sundance, which was a big deal. And it was in the trades and everybody paid attention and the phone started to ring. So we had that amazing experience in Utah at Sundance. And then I optioned it a couple of times, once to Vestron, uh, eventually they went in, announced they were going into bankruptcy. I got it in turnaround, optioned just another indie that's become huge now, but it was small then into a new regency. And it got, st- it got, it was in the doldrums. We couldn't get a caster finance. I sent it as a writing sample to a friend who was a senior VP. And, you know, he'd grown up to become a senior VP at Touchstone, the Disney sister label, saying, here's a great writing sample. We're stuck. It's not available. It's about a prostitute. It's so not Disney. And yet you're going to fall so madly in love with this uh, writer that you're going to right now put on your calendar a week from today, we're meeting and we're going to come pick you at least one, if not a couple of Disney appropriate stories, three days, four days, whatever it was later, he said, we're going to have that meeting, but we want to buy the script. And he said, the, you know, my, pre- the president of the studio read it, the chairman, Jeffrey Kasperger, everybody, re- we're going to buy it. We want to buy it. And I was like, it makes no sense. We go to a meeting at the appointed time, the writer and I, and we walk into a room, normally you expect one, maybe two executives. There were 20 plus people in the room. It was all the hierarchy of Disney. It was Gary Marshall, the director and his people. It was New Regency and their people. There was a line, an executive producer, a line producer. There was a casting director. There were all, it was like, what is this party? Well, it turns out, and this is a great lesson about life, not just filmmaking. You never know what's happening on the other side of the conversation. Disney had a film called What About Bob with uh, originally to star Michael Keaton. His deal went awry. I don't know what happened, but it went away. So long before they could reboot it with Bill Murray, they had a director, a full production of complement uh, of production people uh, and no film to make. And they looked at ours and said, if we could lighten this, if we could make it a comedy, we'll just do that instead. So at one point, the, oh, the president of the studio turned to me and said, on the Disney lightness scale, this is a four and we'd like it to be a seven. Can you do that? And I said, yeah, absolutely. 
I mean, I sort of knew what he meant. <laughs> uh, it didn't matter. I was saying yes to our first studio deal. And that's everyone got jubilant and off we went. And obviously, Jonathan, the writer, I, I made sure he got first crack to turn it into the comedy, which he did. And then off we went. Julia, I knew my dream cast was Julia and Richard. Mm -hmm. And Julia, three years earlier, I'd gone to a friends and family cast a screening of a indie film called uh, Mystic Pizza, which was so wonderful. And the producers wanted feedback. I said, it's a beautiful film. I wouldn't change a thing. But you got to introduce me to that girl. She's Vivian in a project I'm working on. And they did. And Julia loved it and stayed attached for three years. By the time we got it to Disney, she had shot Steel Magnolias, but it hadn't been released. And she was not known to the American public or to the studios, really. And they didn't want her. So, And Richard Gere had turned me down twice already. <laughs> so I was feeling a little bit like, oh, gosh. And we literally, the who's who of male and female name actors who paraded through. Some of them were made offers, turned it down. Some were not made offers. But it was Michelle Piper and Al Pacino. I mean, the list was incredible. And every time I saw an audition or a screen test or even just a meeting, uh, my heart would sink. Like I didn't see the film. Anyway, long story short, I, I said, we got to we got to go after, uh, you know, we've got to go after Richard one more time. We never had I never had a big director, big studio or a big checkbook. Make him the godfather offer. <laughs> and they did. And he said, yes. There was one agent over there, Andre Eastman, who was banging her shoe on the table, slapping her and saying, you must do this. And he finally <laughs> relented and said yes. Oh, and once we, once we had this star name star, I, I said to the director, Gary Marshall, amazing. Look, the studio doesn't care what I think. I'm a guppy. You're a whale. Um, there's, a, there's an actress I'd like you to meet. She is not well known. But I will say two things. You have to, number one, you need to meet with her alone. Not me, nobody else. Just meet her and prepare to fall in love. <laughs> he did. And he did. <laughs> and uh, ultimately, we screen tested the two of them together. And it burned the film up. It was so impossibly brilliant. Yeah. But before then, here, so here's the sweet story. Gary Marshall takes Julia on a plane to New York to Richard's apartment so they could meet. Uh, Richard was iffy about doing the film with, you know, in general and because he didn't know this young actress. So they get there and a few minutes after introducing him, Gary Marshall goes to the back of the apartment somewhere down the hall. He disappears, leaves them alone. 15 minutes later, Richard's phone, uh, uh, cell phone rings. He picks it up and it's Gary Marshall saying, how's it going? And Richard smiles and Julia can hear and she sees a post-it a pad of post-its and takes up a pen and writes something, turns around, pushes it over Richard and he holds it up and it just says, please say yes. <laughs> and he smiles, Richard smiles. And he says, I think I just said yes. <laughs> and that was, you know, so that's kind of how the dream can't look. I never would have been brilliant enough. I'll be very honest. I never would have thought of Gary Marshall to be our director. Thank God that the forces of the universe were aligned in our favor because it wouldn't have been the same film without Richard, without Julia, without Gary. Anyway, you know, it's, it's, I could go on and on and on. There's stories uh, to the ends of time about any given yeah. film. 
Yeah. It's amazing. I have so many little turns and, and I really hold the belief, you know, God, universe, whichever way you relate to it, when alignment is present, it is always conspiring in our favor. And, you know, my last question for you at Unconventional Lifers, if you've been digging this conversation, we've got an epic giveaway coming up shortly, just after this rapid fire round is really about how to keep that vision. Like you said, there are so many micro deaths. Maybe at times it felt like big deaths just in that process of who is it going to go to in Disney? And can you crank it up to a seven in the comedy scale to being turned down twice by Richard to knowing and seeing Vivian as Julia Roberts to all of these components and yet the full actualization of it, you know, and I think it's part force and part will of what wants to happen from like God universe standpoint, and then holding that vision with lack of attachment, but true truth and clarity. And how do you do that in your life? And really for our listeners, a lot of them have big missions, big soul missions, and it's confronting and it's scary and it's oftentimes counterintuitive. And it's also very clear and it's very right. And it's very real. And so any last little bits of advice you can give on how you've done that in your life and um, anyone who might be in that situation, how they can do that in theirs. Yeah. I mean, I think it took me a long time to really trust my gut and celebrate failure and, and see it as a, as a friend, not a source of shame. And I've, I've had so many failures that thank God, because, you know, for every success I've had, I can't even count the number of failures. And I've, I've determined that they're, they're the, they're the nutritious meal that feeds me to keep me going. And it's how I, the perspective how I interpret them. So, well, I think we all have something big to birth into the world. And look, I think, you know, we've been, we've been mistaught in, in ways that are really unfortunate. We, we tend to be very harsh judges of self. Uh, we tend to give ourselves a report card. You know, it's like the, the, the actor who goes into an audition and comes out in a terrible funk for days on end because he didn't get the gig. Instead of seeing, oh my gosh, what a win. I went into a room, my dream room with a casting associate, a casting director, a producer, a director maybe, and I gave my best possible performance, but I shared who I am and my vision and my, you know, my energy with, with them in a genuine way. And the purpose of the audition is not to get a job, is to get invited back, right? It's all about how you look at it. And it's, as I say, it's, it's taken me a lot of years, but I, I really trust my gut a lot more than my head. You know, I thank this for trying to protect me, my mind, my, those, the monkey mind, right? The monkey mind is a, is a devilish little guy, but I, I just trust myself. And I know I'm going to get bloody in the arena from time to time. But I, you know, I, I learned that fear, doubt, and worry, you know, are constantly doing battle with, uh, with passion, curiosity, and self-belief. They can't live together. They really can't. One side wins, one side loses. And if you choose to aim high and think big and commit to things that, as my friend Ken Cragen would say, it's just impossible enough to be possible, then you're inviting yourself to grow, to be uncomfortable, to come a step closer to being who you're meant to be in the world. You know, those, those, those downstrokes, the self-judgment, the down, they're, they're there to do their job. They're trying to protect mm -hmm. us, but we're capable of more than most of us imagine. And so when we just say, I don't care if I seem like the, the you know, the, the court jester or the, or the fool, I'm going to choose what I feel to be my dharma. I do believe the universe is going to line up with me as long as I work hard and I speak the truth and I vocalize to the world who I am and what I want. So, you know, honestly, I failed so much. I don't, I'm at the point where I don't mind failing initially, even if it's, if, even if it's just grand spectacle of failure, because <laughs> um, I do it often, but I, I know that we're resilient. I know that we learn by doing it. We learn as we go, including how to keep our doubts at bay. 
And so when I believe in a project like what Pretty Woman was uh, in its infancy, I know, I just know that I'm not going to quit. And it, it doesn't matter whether it takes a year, three years or seven years, I'm, you know, it's worth it. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. Gary Goldstein, everyone. Gary, I feel like you and I could chat for hours and uh, <laughs> we might have to have you on for a part two at some point, but let's go ahead and dive into the rapid fire round. There's a series of lightning questions coming at you. This is the last part of the show. This is the part you were probably not prepared for. <laughs> so I, you... <laughs> I, lo I love being unprepared. <laughs> the surprise part of the show. So are you ready? Series of five questions coming at you. Come at me. All right. Question number one, fill in the blank. If you really knew me, you would know what? speaking about yourself? Oh, if you really knew me, you know, the limitless love I have for the joy that is my life. I love that. Well said. Next question. What is one practice that you do regularly that you feel really sets you up for a good mind frame for success? Oh gosh, I've got so many. I've got morning and evening and in between and top three, <laughs> you know, I would say, um, help someone every single day. Share your journey and dreams and goals generously with people who support you. Surround yourself with quality people who support you and share generously. I would go back to saying, welcome failure no differently than success. Same thing, twins never separated at birth. I would say practice gratitude every single day, preferably at the start of the day and take good care of your temple, you know, eat well, work out often, keep this thing vibrant. Love give, that. Yourself, give yourself the opportunity to do what you're here to do. Yeah. So good. Next question, Gary, are you still a CrossFitter? <laughs> oh, heck yes. <laughs> Amazing. I have gone to CrossFit in probably maybe 13 different countries around the world. Oh, la, la. All, all these languages from Italian. I was in Morocco and it was in Arabic and it was just like in Marrakesh to Spanish to French. It's universal, the movement. So at some point in the world, you know, you'll have to keep going. <laughs> We're going to have to train together. Where, how many years have you been doing it? Um, probably about six years now. Yeah. About six okay. or seven years. So, okay. You've got seniority over me, <laughs> but I, I, I'm going to run and catch up with you. Uh, yeah, yeah. It, it is, it is such an, a life affirming, uh, discipline. It is so unexpectedly varied. It is a community that is so shockingly uplifting. Yeah. And those edges of peak performance with your mind and your body, there is such a sweet spot. So unconventional lifers come CrossFit with Gary and I at some point or CrossFit yeah. on your own <laughs> and experience the benefits for yourself. So, yeah. Yeah. Amen. It's as, you're right. It's, it's as beautiful a mental discipline as it is a physical. Yeah. I love that. Next question. What is one food that you really enjoy eating? One food? Yeah. Oh my God. Um, one food. I mean, I, I love food. Um, you know, if I had to say, like, if I could survive on, on several things, just several single ingredient things, I'd, you, is, there's definitely an avocado in there and there's definitely an egg in there. And, you know, like I tend to eat very simply and healthy, okay. Yeah. but I don't, I don't know if I have like, you know, one go-to yeah. recipe. I love it. Avocado and eggs. It's perfect. And lastly, Gary, what does living the unconventional life mean to you in just a few words? An unconventional life? Yeah. What does it mean to you in a few words? Oh gosh. Being bold enough to lay down the stories that don't serve you, not worrying about other people's expectations or judgments, being kind and caring toward yourself so you can be kind and caring toward others. Trust that you know what's best for you and the difference between what belongs to you and what doesn't. Self-love, big. 
right? Dare to, dare to be great, love yourself, because the absence of that diminishes and keeps so much of humanity in check, unable to live into their true life, their true dharma, or whatever you want to say. I would just say, know your truth and live life on your own terms and invest heavily, like really heavily in your friends and your relationships, in the work that feels uh, deeply aligned and significant and in your health and well-being. I love that, Gary Goldstein, everyone. Gary, tell us about the giveaway that you've got for one of our listeners. Um, well, I would love to hop on a phone call one-on-one with whoever it is uh, that is, um, you know, number one, a big fan of unconventional life as I am fast becoming. Uh, so yeah, I don't, you know, wherever you are in the world, whatever, whatever it is, that is, you know, your life and your work and whatever, let's roll up sleeves and have fun for 30 minutes and, and get to know one another. And, and if there's some way I can be of help, that's what I'm there for. I love that. Unconventional lifers hop on this giveaway, go to unconventionallifeshow.com. Click on the giveaway tab. If you want to win this giveaway with Gary, also feel free to send us an email. If you really, 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 really want to win this giveaway with Gary, such a great offering and such a unique offering. And uh, Gary, for those that want to learn more about you, the books that you've written, the movies, what's coming up next. I know there's constant inspiration that keeps flowing through you. So what's the best place for people to follow along and to stay in touch? You know, my handle on my social media handle, it's pretty much consistent. It's just my name. It's uh, at Gary, G-A-R-Y-W Goldstein, G-O-L-D-S-T-E-I-N. Amazing. Yeah. We will throw that up at our website at unconventionallifeshow.com in the show notes. Gary, thank you so much for being on the show today, for being a fan of the show and for just sharing your brilliance, your stories. We'll have to have you on for part two to talk more about storytelling, maybe at some other point in the future, but it was so good to have I you would, on the show. I would love that, Jules. And thank you. I'm really honored to be a, a guest on your on your unconventional life, truly. Awesome. Thanks so much, everyone. We'll have more amazing shows coming at you soon.